It is BS.show. That's who we are. BS on, in the morning as we used to be, but it's still Brad and Shelly. She's Brad, I'm Shelly, and together we make BS, right? Right. Are you back? I am back. Okay, I have something new that I haven't done in a long time. As a matter of fact, I've never done it before. I've done some work here in the studio, and I don't know if this is going to work or not, but I want to see if this works. Hold on a minute. I'm going to play a little beginning of the song for you. I hope an ad doesn't play. Hold on a minute. I love that song. It's called, what's it called? I don't know. Drunk, and in parentheses, I don't want to go home. Oh, that's the song. That's the song. God, that's a good song. I heard that in WI all Are over the weekend. Are you going to play it? No, I'm not going to. Well, I don't know. Why? You think we should? Sure. But it's got it's got the twanginator going on, you know? So? <laughs> the video is really good. It's a really good video. <laughs> it reminds me of my days spinning records at wedding receptions. God, I could tell you some stories. I could I tell bet you, you could. I could tell you some stories that, you know, sometimes you hear about a wedding or our marriage doesn't get off on the right foot. Been there. You can always tell by their <laughs> well, reception. Been there. How drunk the groom oh, is. No, been there, seen that. I mean, <laughs> I did a wedding reception once at the Machinist Hall in Bridgeton, which used to be one of the cool places to have your wedding reception. I don't it know if did. it still is or not. Yes. Remember, that was one of the cool places, especially if you had the big hall. You have the two little, what they call the L halls, which are like these long L shaped rooms, and the dance floor was out in the middle of it. And it was funny, some of the ones we did there, like, you know, if you're standing like as the DJ stand, you're standing there looking out at the crowd. On the right part of the uh, building, you had the groom's family, and then you have the left part of the building. You had the bride's family, and the middle was like the DMZ. You know what I mean? It was the demilitarized zone where nobody crossed it. You know, nobody from the bride's family went across the DMZ to the groom's family. It was just like, okay, you can tell things are tense here. And can I tell you a quick story? Sure. I'll never forget this. This was during, God, this this shows how long ago this was. This was during the height of the gas crisis, okay? Oh, my. That's been a while. <laughs> right. When when you couldn't, and, and if those of you old enough to remember, you couldn't just go to the gas station any day you wanted. You had to do it by the last digit of your license plate. If you had, an, you know, there were odd days and even days. Remember that? I don't remember that. that oh, was, yeah. Oh, yeah. I yeah. was still a a child. Yeah, back in the day. This is like, remember, I'm 86. So I remember this kind of stuff. So yeah. anyway, you went to the gas station. If you haven't, you know, like Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I think was odd. Monday, Wednesday, Friday was even. I think anybody could go on Sunday. So if you had like an even license plate, you can only go on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And the gas stations closed like at 6 o'clock at night. And they were closed. So you can tell things were not going well all night long. But as everybody got a little bit liquored up, the crowd got a little bit more, you know, friendly, and people actually crossed the DMZ. And then about 11 o'clock, we were announcing, the fact, hey, the bride and groom, hey, are getting on a flight tomorrow morning, early flight out, so we're going to bid them adieu. You know, at the DJ, hey, everybody, hey, they're leaving right now. Everybody give good cheer for the bride and groom as they walk out. So they left. About a half an hour later, <laughs> the bride and groom are back. And the bride is P-I-S-S-E-D. She's so Why? mad, you probably could have burnt, uh, put an egg in her forehead and fried an egg in her forehead. Why? Because her DS husband, and D stands for dumb, figure out what S stands for. Okay. Her DS new husband didn't have any gas in the car. <laughs> so they drove about five miles away from the reception hall right there on the rock road. And he thought, well, I'll just get some, on the way to the hotel, I'll just get some gas. No gas stations open. So they turned around and came back 
<laughs> because they they were staying like I don't know where they were staying downtown or something like that, and they didn't have enough gas to make it downtown, and there were no gas stations open, so they got back. That was probably his one job. That's <laughs> yes, right. Okay. Okay. Gas the car. <laughs> Gas up the car, you know, it's to, enough to make it from the reception that night to the hotel room because, you know, it's the honeymoon night and we're going to the hotel. And then the next morning, you know, you get up early and you fly, you drive out to the airport and you leave your car in the long-term parking and you go on your honeymoon. Okay, so the groom's father and the bride's father got into a fight over this and the Bridgeton police had to come and break it up. I swear oh to God, true story. And the the groom's the bride's father was yelling, "I knew my I knew my daughter married a dumb blankety blank." <laughs> it was so funny. And there's this fight going on on the dance floor. Oh boy, those were the days. <laughs> we did one one woman. At the at Machinist Hall, I, I, I swear to God, this is a true story. We did her reception three times. Same man? No, she got married and divorced three times within like six years. The first time and we... And she wanted her favorite DJ. <laughs> in the same hall. It was so weird. She called us up like like two years. She goes, hey, remember me? You guys did a real good job at my wedding reception at the Machinist Hall. You know, and I want to have you back. Okay, you having a little party? No, I'm getting married again. Oh, okay. So you got divorced. Yeah, it didn't, didn't work out. We got divorced after about six months. And now I got a new guy and I'm really in love with him and we're getting married again. Same place. You know, same place. You know, will you do it again? Yes, ma'am. We'll do it again. So we did it. And then like two years later, she called us again. And we're like, or maybe it's like three years later. Hey, remember me? You did my water reception twice. Yes. How can we forget you? And they were, it was really great crowd. God, these were a party people and they had a great time. And you, you know, played, you know, we played, had the crowd going and they were just having a great time. I mean, it was, and everybody had a smile on their face. Nobody was mad. Everybody was having fun, you know, three times. <laughs> What's so funny. We probably booked, I don't know, 15 wedding receptions off of that because of the fact that you know, she she liked us so much. She had us three times. Can you imagine that? Getting married and divorced three times in like six years? I can't imagine using the same uh, DJ. Are you saying that we did a bad job? Is that what you're saying? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> I'm saying you did an excellent job. But the same DJ for three different times? Mm. Well. Yeah. It was the same hall. I can't say I would do that. It was the same hall. I mean, it's like... Exactly. It's, I mean, it's like... I mean, I think she even used the same caterer. I mean, talking about residual business, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, like, you know, holy cow. Okay. Uh, smartest Woman in the World says play it. Maybe I'll play it tomorrow. Uh, I do like that song. Uh, okay. Now, here's what I want to talk about now. I found this yesterday on... Someone sent this to me, and I did find it absolutely positively fascinating. It's, it's a story about... The movie Dirty Dancing. And what's interesting is, I told a little bit about last hour that the story is, is the background on it is that, and once again, I'm not being racial or prejudiced or anything like that. This is true life. Uh, people who lived in New York City, mainly who were Jewish, would go and vacation. They would have a summer vacation at these resorts in the, in the Catskills, the Catskill Mountains of New York. And they would usually say, stay for two, three weeks. Sometimes they would stay the entire summer. 
and they would just go there and vacation and then when you know things went went you know when it became time to far fall they left and they went back to their place in new york city okay so the lady who wrote the movie her name is eleanor bergstein her father was a jewish doctor she was jewish her father was a jewish doctor and she wrote the story about her experiences at a resort in the Catskills when she was a young girl. So she writes the screenplay, and she goes, and first off, she wrote it for Michael Douglas. Really? And he didn't like it. So she went to, I uh, can't remember what the big, the big, uh, the big, uh, here, let me, the, the plot, cast, uh, production. Okay, so she goes to, yeah, Dirty Dancing is based in large part on screenwriter Eleanor Bergstein's own childhood. She was the younger daughter of a Jewish doctor from New York and had spent summers with her family in the Catskills where she, where she participated in dirty dancing competitions. She was also nicknamed Baby herself as a girl. In 1980, Bergstein wrote a successful play for Michael Douglas. However, the producers cut an erotic dancing scene from the script, prompting her to conceive a new story that took inspiration for her youth dance competitions. In 1984, she pitched the idea to MGM executive Ellen Massell, who liked it, and team Bergstein with producer Linda Gottlieb. They set the film in 1963 with the character Baby based on Bergstein's own life and the character of Johnny based on the stories of Michael Terrence a dance instructor whom Bergstein met at the Catskills in 1985 while she was researching the story. She finished the script in November 1985, but management changes at MGM put the script into turnaround or limbo. So in other words, she, they got a deal at MGM, and MGM didn't do anything with it. She gave the studio to other scripts, other studios, but it was repeatedly rejected until she brought it to Vestron Pictures. Now, it was interesting. Vestron had never produced a movie before. And if you remember, back in the day, Vestron was a company that produced VHS tapes. If you went to, like, Blockbuster, Vestron was the company that produced the tapes that went into the Blockbuster stores. So she pitched it to, to Vestron, and, and the only problem, Vestron loved it, but the budget was $12 million. And they go, hey, we're a small company. We can't afford $12 million. So this Bergstein, she said, I'll cut the budget to five. And they said, okay, we'll produce the movie. Okay, so now she, cho uh, she chose choreographer. The guy was Kenny Ortega, who had been trained by G. Kelly. For location, they did not find anything suitable in what they called the Borscht Belt, which is the Catskills. So they had two locations, Lake Lure in North Carolina and the Mountain Lake Hotel near Pembroke, Virginia. And one of them, Lake Lure in North Carolina, was an old Boy Scout camp. Now get this, the casting director decided they wanted to have, they didn't want to have a stand-in. They wanted to have Johnny, who ultimately was Patrick Swayze, they wanted to have Johnny actually dance. They didn't want to have it fake so that it was like, you know, the scenes where, you know, some actor was doing like all the scenes up close, but then they had the dancing scenes. It was like a double. So they wanted to have Patrick Swayze. Now, the interesting thing was, at the time, Patrick Swayze was not interested in doing any dancing. Matter of fact, on his resume, it said, I will not do movies where I have to dance. And why is that? Because he had injured his leg and he did not feel that he could dance as well as he could once upon a time. And remember, he was a ballet dancer. It seemed dancer. like he danced pretty fine. Well, that was the interesting thing. He was a ballet dancer. He was trained in classical ballet. Okay, now, so they didn't offer it to him first. First, they'd offered him to Val Kilmer, then Benicio, Benicio Val Kilmer, then Benicio del Toro. And he was also considered for Johnny. The next choice was 34-year-old Patrick Swayze, who appeared in Grandview, USA, and what's interesting, had co-starred with Jennifer Grey in the movie Red Dawn in 1984. And here's the interesting part of it. 
they hated each other. They hated each other. Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey had been in this movie, Red Dawn, and they had not gotten along well. And at times, the cast sometimes said it was so toxic on the scene when they were in the scenes together because they just absolutely hated each other. So the producers were thrilled with him. But his resume, this is where it says, the resume said no dancing after knee injury. However, Swayze read the script, liked the multi-level character of Johnny, and took the part anyway. Now, get this. After this, Johnny's heritage was changed from being Italian to Irish. Gray was initially not happy about the choice, as she and Swayze had difficulty getting along on Red Dawn. But when they did their dancing screen test, the chemistry between them was obvious. Berkstein described it as breathtaking. Other casting choices were Broadway actor Jerry Orbach as Dr. Jake Hausman. He was in uh, one of the, what was he? He was in, boom, uh, boom. He was the dad. Yeah, he was the bad dad, but he was on, uh, what's the what's the TV show? He was on, uh, you know what I'm talking about. It's, I do know what you're talking okay. about. Law and Order. Right, Law and Order. Okay. Uh, Bergstein, and I get this, Bergstein, so the film writers, tried to hire sex therapist Dr. Ruth Westheimer, and she was going to play the role of Mrs. Schumacher, who her and her husband were the thieves. You remember this, the story that oh, they, yeah, they, yeah. they accused Johnny of stealing the wallets and things like that it was actually this old Jewish couple, the Schumachers. And she originally took the position, took the role as being uh, Mrs. Schumacher, but when she found out that it involved her playing a thief, she said, no, I'm not doing that because I'm not a thief. So <laughs> the other the other thing was, Cousin Brucie is the DJ, and he used to be a DJ in WABC in New York, and and uh, they uh, they dubbed him in as the soundtrack. If you remember, they, like he's on this, hey, here's a song from what's going on, you know. Anyway, he was also the magician in the movie. Now, get this, part of Baby's mother was originally given to Lynn Lipton, who was briefly visible in the beginning when the Hausman family first pulls into Kellerman's, but she got very ill during the first week of shooting, and they replaced her with actress Kelly Bishop who'd already been cast to play a resort guest, Vivian Pressman. Bishman, Bishop moved into the role of Mrs. Hausman and the Phil's assistant choreographer. Miranda Garrison took on the role of Vivian. So they took the assistant choreographer, and she became part of the thing. Okay, They shot the thing in a Boy Scout camp called, originally at Lake Lurie, it was a Boy Scout camp was called Camp Akanakachi. And I'm not kidding. It's O-C-C-O-N-E-E-C-H-E-E, Akanakachi which is a private residential community now, alone, now alone, uh, no, known as Firefly, Firefly Cove. Now, there's a couple interesting things. They started filming the movie in the summer, and it took 43 days. At times, the outside temperatures was 105, and the camera and lighting equipment in some of the rooms that were shooting inside, the inside temperature was 120. During the, the filming of the dance scenes, 10 people passed out, 10 dancers passed out within 25 minutes of shooting one day. Patrick Swayze also passed out during one of the dancing scenes, was taken to the, into, into, uh, into the hospital in an ambulance and had to get an IV. He was dehydrated. He was like he had heat stroke. And get this. Remember the scene where they're walking across the, 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 the log, the log scene, the balancing scene? You remember that scene? I do. Okay. He... He did multiple takes because he kept falling off the log, and one time he fell off the log and badly injured his knee, and they had to stop filming for a couple of days because they had to have fluid drained from his knee. Anyway, delays in the shooting scene pushed filming into autumn, which required the set directors to spray paint the autumn leaves green. So on the trees, they went and they sprayed the leaves green. 
The weather became cold, causing the lake's temperature to drop to near 40. And that was when the famous swimming scene was shot where they're out in the lake and he's doing like the, you know, where he holds her up in the air. It was 40 degrees. Gray later described the water as horrifically cold and said she might not have gone to the lake except that she was young and hungry. Relations between the two stars varied throughout the production. They had already had trouble getting along in their previous project, blah, 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 blah. And it got so bad at one point in time that they wouldn't even look at each other. So the director and Bergstein would play back their their screen test, the one that they saw, they, they played, they said that was there, that when the two were together, it was breathtaking. They would play back the screen test of the two and they would make them watch it they would both they would sit them down with a tv monitor now watch this when you two were getting along and they would play this video of them doing the audition where they're dancing smiling at each other and then they would be in a better mood <laughs> can you believe this now the things that they have to do right the shooting wrapped on october 27 1986 by that time uh, on budget no one on the team, however, liked the rough cut. <laughs> Get this. They gave they they gave the they Vestron executive uh they 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 called in producer Aaron Russo. I don't know if he is, but he's apparently got a lot of credentials. And they wanted him to see the 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 rough cut of the of the movie. And they screened it for him. And he got up and said, You ready for this? Burn the negative and collect the insurance. <laughs> He said he thought the movie was so bad. Burn the negative, collect the insurance, and for that, what happens is when movie companies do things like that, they get insurance that if the film is never finished, that the insurance company pays them. So you know, it's like it's almost like a like a bond in construction. Like if right, you're you going right. to build something, you, and like a bridge or something like that, construction company has to have a bond because of middle middle of construction. If they if they just don't build the bridge or whatever, office building, whatever, the construction company loses the bond and, and the insurance company pays off. So anyway, further disputes are now, get this, further disputes arose over where whether a corporate sponsor could be found to promote the film. Marketers of the Clearasil acne product liked the film, seeing it as a vehicle to reach a teen audience. However, when they learned the film contained an abortion scene, they asked for that part of the plot to be cut. Berkstein refused, so the Clearasil promotion was dropped. How in the world were they going to promote Clearasil? Was Johnny going to look at the camera and go, hey, look at my not beautiful face. I use Clearasil. I mean, how are we going to work Clearasil into the movie? Anyway. They probably would have during one of the scenes um, with her and her sister. Okay. The Vestron executives were so upset that this movie had turned into a train wreck that they decided they were going to put it in theaters for one weekend. They were going to show it in, weekend, in, in theaters for one weekend and then go directly to home video since Vestron had been the video distribution business before film production. Okay, so they think this is a crash and burn. Okay, so the interesting part of the story is the story goes on, and if you read the reviews, Siskel and Ebert, uh, Roger Ebert gave it a thumbs down to its idiot plot. He called it tired and relentlessly predictable story of a love between kids from different backgrounds. Time, Time Magazine was lukewarm. If the ending of Eleanor Bernstein's script is too neat and inspirational, the rough energy of the film's song and dance does carry one along past the whispered doubts of blah, 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 blah. Abortion rights advocate called the film the gold standard for cinematic portrayals of abortion. Uh, the film drew adult audience instead. Now get this. It turned out that in 10 days it made 10 million dollars 
And, wow. And, and by November, it was also uh, achieving international fame. Within seven months of release, it had brought in $63 million in the U.S. and boosted attendance in dance classes across America. Everybody's going to dance. Hey, we want to dance like Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. It was one of the highest grossing films of 1987, earning $170 million worldwide. This is 1987. This is almost, what, 40 years ago? Here we're in 20, uh, it's 2021, was 30, 30, 30, 30, what, 34 years ago? Yeah, 34 years ago. The film's popularity continued to grow after its initial release. It was the number one video rental of 1988 and became the first film to sell a million copies on video. Get that, the first film to sell a million copies on video. When the film was re-released in 1997, 10 years later, its original release, Swayze received his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and videos were still selling at the rate of 40,000 per month. As of 2005, it was selling a million DVDs per year with over 10 million copies sold as of 2007. A May 2007 survey by Britain Sky Movie listed Dirty Dancing as number one on women's most watched movies above the Star Wars trilogy, Grease, The Sound of Music, and Pretty Woman. The film's popularity has also caused it to be called The Star Wars for Girls. Would you, would you like that? The Star Wars for Girls. That's Let what me they're think saying. about that. They're saying that's what this, this British thing. Okay, the film's music is also considered impact. The closing song, I've Had the Time of My Life, has been listed as the third most popular song played at funerals in the United Kingdom. Wow. In October of 2021, amid a dispute over abortion in Texas Magazine, the Hollywood Reporter recommended the film as one to revisit on abortion in the cinema industry. Angie Han, writing for the magazine, highlighted Eleanor Bergstein's writing of the film. And once again, it talks about how it won all these awards. It won the Academy Award for Best Original Song, won that. Uh, Best Foreign Fil- Feature Film, won that. Uh, ASCAP Film and Out Television Music Awards, won, won, won. BMI Film, won, won, won. I mean, it won all these awards. Golden Globes Award, Best Original Song, Motion Picture. And there's and it, and it became, and like, um, a matter of fact, in 2002, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Passions, it was number three. 2004, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Songs, it was number 86. 2005, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes, uh, Nobody Puts Baby in the Corner, that's number 98. And in 2006, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Cheers nominated. Music. The music won all sorts of awards. Um, God, I can't. The thing goes on and on and on. And keep in mind, this was a film that, A, almost didn't be made, wasn't made. And, B, once it was made, one of the consultants said, burn it. (laughs) It's terrible. Can you believe that? I can. I mean, I find things like that fascinating because it just goes to show you that people who have perseverance, this lady who was the writer, Eleanor Bergstein, she would not take no for an answer. And she just kept moving forward. She, you know, when people say, eh, movie's stupid, you know, I mean, she would never take an answer, no for an answer. And the Patrick Swayze thing I thought was fascinating because of the fact that, that he, he didn't want to dance anymore. And imagine that. You know, it's, like, it's just like, remember. This is like John Travolta not wanting well, to dance. But see, go back in, in, in history, okay? When Saturday Night Fever came out, everybody went to the disco. Everybody got the clothes he wore, you know, the pants, you know, the, the leisure suit kind of thing. And all the women were all dressing like the girls in Saturday Night Live. And then, what, is three or four years later, he was urban cowboy. And everybody was, you know, matter of fact, if you remember this, the, the place is gone. They tore it down years ago. But there was um, a hotel right in the corner of 70 and Lindbergh. You know what I'm talking about? It's where the big, what, I think it's the Radisson. It's the big, fancy, high-rise hotel now that's right there. As you go, it's right on the end. I'm going to put this in Shelley terms. It's at the end of 624. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about, now, don't you? 
I do. <laughs> That's the runway. Uh, out of one of Lambert's out. The runway's out at Lambert. Shelly knows her runways because she used to work on six two four, right? That, that was my runway. Yes, that, that was the ILS runway, right? That was the that was the. They were all ILS runways. Yeah, but that but was six two four. Wasn't that the highest category ILS runway? Um, wasn't that like the really good 624? one? Six two four. Yes, wasn't no. that? It wasn't. I thought it was. Okay. Anyway, no. they used to be placed there. There, right? It was a. It was a. It was a club, um, and it was called Cowboy. Remember that? You were probably too young for that. And the interesting thing is, one night I went to go there by myself to look for some women, and they wouldn't let me in because you know why? You didn't have on cowboy attire. I didn't have on designer jeans. I had on Levi's, and Levi's were not considered. This was an upscale country place, and you couldn't wear Levi's. You had to have designer jeans. You have to have, like, life Rolf Lauren jeans or something like that, polo jeans or whatever it was at the time. Yeah, pulled and they, out by your jeans, they, would, huh? yeah, they wouldn't let me in because I didn't have the right jeans on. Huh. Life is tough. Life's it tough. It is. Life's tough. And you know what? What? We're way behind because you talk too much. That was me. Yeah, it was all Shelly's fault. It's 7.30. It is.